From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, December 8th. Governor Spencer Cox recently announced his proposed budget and plan to address homelessness throughout the state of Utah. Anna Johnson with our partners at Utah Public Radio reports. Governor Spencer Cox announced an agreement with local governments to support homeless services throughout the state. Cox says these partnerships are supported by recommendations for his proposed budget for the 2025 fiscal year. The governor says his plan is a holistic approach that addresses short-term needs while incorporating strategies to address homelessness in the long term. Cox says the plan to alleviate homelessness in Utah starts with prevention. He says the plan will increase accessible and affordable permanent housing opportunities. His proposed budget would set aside $10 million for housing preservation and another $30 million for what he calls deeply affordable housing. In addition to prevention strategies, Cox's plan focuses on increasing access to behavioral health services with a recommendation of $8 million for behavioral health in his budget. His proposed budget would also set aside nearly $130 million for emergency shelter services that would target housing resources and supportive services to those who need them most. He also proposed the creation of a home court, an alternative to the criminal justice system that would divert people to treatment services rather than jail. The Utah legislature will vote on the governor's full budget proposal during their legislative session. I'm Anna Johnson. The Salt Lake Valley's west side is home to more than 350,000 people. It's also home to major highways, an international airport, warehouses, and other sources of pollution. Those industries and decisions made more than a century ago contribute to the nasty air west side residents breathe. Sage Miller, with our partners at KUER in Salt Lake City, explains the impact of that pollution. It's been nearly two decades since Marianne Wilson moved to Rose Park. My reporting partner, Alex El Cabrera, with the Salt Lake Tribune, met Wilson on a hot summer day at the farmer's market downtown. People were sipping apple cider slushies to escape the heat. Rose Park is where Wilson chose to raise her two kids. Very different from her childhood. I grew up on a farm. You know, I didn't have this kind of exposure to particulates and, I don't know, settling dust. Wilson always knew air quality in her neighborhood was a problem. She recognized that it wasn't normal for the mountains to disappear behind a thick curtain of pollution. But it didn't dawn on her just how bad the air was until... 13 years ago, I had a pregnancy loss. And somehow it got like reported in the state database. And then the University of Utah reached out because they were doing some kind of survey study to see if air quality contributed to pregnancy loss in the area because of where I lived. Now she monitors air quality constantly. It's a deciding factor if her kids can play outside or if she goes on a hike that day. The West Side is unique. It's the most ethnically and income diverse region in Utah, and it's the most polluted area of Salt Lake County. We've set up uh, multiple monitors that cover that the, the West Side and the Rose Park and technical center monitors, at least for PM 2.5, seem to be the highest in the network. That's Bryce Bird. He's the director of the Utah Division of Air Quality. PM 2.5 is teeny tiny specks of particulate matter caused by emissions from things like gasoline and dust. High levels of PM 2.5 can cause serious health problems. When we look at our our regulatory monitors that uh, are focusing on our non-attainment areas, and that is where we're not meeting the federal standards, those tend to be located in our high population centers. Which includes the west side. 
Experts say the burden of poor air quality is not shared equally. Part of it is a result of redlining. More than a century ago, people of color were pushed to live in areas that were considered undesirable. Most of Salt Lake City's west side was marked with that red ink. While redlining was outlawed in 1968, its effects are still present. A University of Utah study found there is a direct link between redlining and a higher presence of industry. Redlined neighborhoods also have less green space, and that's a key tool in combating bad air. Vegetation can act as a filter for pollution. Daniel Mendoza is a professor of atmospheric sciences and internal medicine at the University of Utah. We see that wealthier communities are associated with higher levels of vegetation. It's almost really a straight line relationship between um, income or race and amount of green space. Earlier this year, the Environmental Protection Agency released an air quality assessment on the west side. It affirmed what residents already knew. They bear the brunt of bad air. One of the um, community members actually said that they feel like the west side, that people there are the human filters because they're actually breathing in all that air. Daniel Hernandez is another Rose Park resident. Sitting at the Day Riverside Library branch, Hernandez said his son suffered from two respiratory infections when he was an infant. He had a lot of uh, issues with his lungs. Me and my partner became very conscious of air quality stuff because of his condition. But he avoids going to the doctor because it costs too much. And I think a lot of people on this side are, are dealing with that as well, like uh, economic issues that compound uh, the effects of the air quality. And Marianne Wilson isn't convinced the state cares about West Side air quality. Time and time again, I keep seeing, um, you know, the widening of I-15, the inland port, uh, you know, wanting to bring that to our area. Like, I don't think it's going to help Salt Lake. She doesn't want to leave Rose Park, but Wilson wonders if staying is worth her family's future health. Sage Miller reporting with our partners at KUER in Salt Lake City. This story is part of Reaching for Air, a collaboration between KUER and the Salt Lake Tribune to amplify issues around air quality. It's funded through the Brown Institute for Media Innovation at Columbia University. Fry Bread Face and Me is a recently released feature film with an all-Native American cast. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has more. Fry Bread Face and Me is written and directed by Billy Luther, a Navajo, Hopi, and Laguna Pueblo man in his mid-40s. Luther also narrated parts of the film. My grandmother always spoke to me as if I understood her. English was something she refused to learn. I'm sure she thought one day I'd answer her back in Navajo. It's a coming-of-age story set in the year 1990. An adolescent Navajo boy growing up in San Diego spends a summer with his grandmother on the Navajo Nation. We didn't have to try to get it right. We got it right because we lived this and this was our world. Director Billy Luther says the cast was all Navajo, save one member who is an Alaska native. He also hired Navajo crew members. I just wanted to cast people who understood this Navajo world. Most of these people had to speak um, Navajo, so I just don't see it being any other way. If I w was working with a non-native crew, 
I would have had to kind of tell them how to do it, what colors and what you know things go on the wall. The film is semi-autobiographical. The protagonist is based largely on Luther's own life, growing up as a Native American child in Southern California. Growing up in San Diego was a pretty crazy but fun experience. People thought I was Vietnamese, people thought I was uh, Filipino, and and also people thought I was Latino. And nobody knew of Native Americans living in the city, so I was like a chameleon living in California. The film explores the different sides of his life and identity. I just tell the story that is uh, true to me growing up off the reservation, you know, as some would say, an urban Indian, and also being three tribes, um, Navajo, Hopi, and Laguna Pueblo. They're very different from each other. So my perspective, my outlook, and also just my um, way of life is, is unique. And I think that's true for majority of Native storytellers, filmmakers, writers, just diving into that um, truth that's going to be authentic. So that's what I present in my work from my documentaries, you know, in the past and, and this. Billy Luther lives in Los Angeles, and he's part of a growing community of Native American filmmakers there. I'm Clark Adamitis. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KZMU. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The Moab City Council approved a new affordable housing plan at last week's meeting. Gwen Dilworth of the Times Independent speaks with Emily Arnson about what the plan suggests for fixing Moab's housing crisis. The first housing plan was created 15 years ago in the city, and it was most recently updated in 2017. So this is a new version that will last until 2030. Okay, so these are more like guidelines than they are strict rules that the city has to follow? Yeah, my understanding is that the housing plan did a lot of research and data accumulation and then has offered some kind of like guidelines um, and for the city to follow mm-hmm. as they address affordable housing. Yeah. What did some of the research find? Sure. Um, the 2022 median home price in Grand County was $625,000, which oh is a pretty God. shocking price. <laughs> and that's $115,000 higher than the Utah average. Wow. About two-thirds of the housing stock in Moab is a primary residence, and the other third are secondary residences. Okay. And so then based on that information, do they have suggestions for how the city can go about affordable housing in the future? Yeah, there are a lot of suggestions included in the plan. Um, One is kind of to create more deed restrictions, so restricting housing to workforce, local folks, and to make those deed restrictions as long as possible, so at 50 years or 99 years, so that they'll really remain local housing in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Were there any other sort of noteworthy um, suggestions, I guess? Yeah, I think other su- suggestions that were included were implementing a good landlord system or a program, sorry, um, to kind of improve long-term rental units in the area. What does that look like? We, yeah, I actually don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, But I imagine just creating better relationships between landlords and their tenants. Mm. Yeah, we need that in this town. (laughs) Yeah, always. (laughs) Well, Doug reported this story. Um, Did he say what anyone's sort of reaction at the city was to adopting this plan? I don't know if he said in particular, but I think there has been a lot of support 
for the plan and for, you know, I, I think everybody can agree that affordable housing is one of the biggest issues facing Moab. Um, and I know that the city wants to be a part of creating a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So this is adopting this plan is just kind of like demonstrating good faith in terms of like, we are going to work on affordable housing in the future, even though it doesn't necessarily mandate anything. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else did you report on this week? Yeah. Another housing story. Um, the alternative dwelling overlay program um, just turned one year old. <laughs> and uh, with that, you know, benchmark, um, we're kind of seeing that developers are hitting some roadblocks and actually creating these developments. Um, and these developments are meant to be kind of alternative housing developments um, of RVs or tiny homes or campsites um, that would kind of expand housing for local workforce um, in the co- county. Yeah. What are some of the roadblocks that the plan has sort of gotten caught up in over the past year? A couple are cost related. So um, one thing that a lot of folks are reporting are these impact fees. So those are fees that are levied on any new development. It's a one-time fee to kind of offset the impact of a new development on sewer water systems in the county. And they can be really costly, especially for local developers who maybe don't have those deep pockets that out-of-town developers might. I spoke to one developer who told me that his impact fees would be $5,800 per RV unit. So wow. say you have 10 units on in your development, that would be $58,000. It's a pretty high cost. Yeah. And does that money have to go to the county for like sewage or like what does that money go who does it go to and what does it go go toward (laughs) so if the development is in the county it um will go towards any infrastructure improvements to sewer and water Mm. um yeah is that a one-time cost or every year it's just one time okay so it's just a, a really big upfront cost yeah so have any of these alternative dwelling locations been established yet no. So to date, no site plans have been approved. And when the ordinance was written, the benchmark for getting those plans approved was actually six months. So the first round of developments that were approved um, in March, in early March, have already hit their six-month benchmark, and none of them have met it. Several have asked for extensions, and one has kind of decided to hold back um, for now. Mm. And is there a timeline for when they have to complete these projects or have a plan approved? Yeah, so the extension gives them another six months to get that site plan approved. But there is another benchmark, which is two years from their initial approval. They need to have a resident or a, what do you call it? Like a Certificate res- of oh, occupancy. Okay. Yeah. Or else what happens? The plan gets like dissolved? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure if there are any other extensions that they can ask for or what that means exactly for okay. their development. Is that because this is kind of like a special project that the county is sponsoring or it's like they're making a special exception for alternative dwellings or why would they put that timeline on it? Yeah, I think their hope is to kind of bring these uh, units online as quickly as possible. That was kind of the idea of the program was to create lower barrier to entry workforce housing in the county. Yeah, seems like maybe it's not working. Like, is this easier than making a new subdivision or some other kind of like multiple occupancy residence area? Yeah, I think it probably is easier, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. (laughs) It seems like there are still some pretty high barriers um, to getting these 
units online. Yeah. Other than the the cost barrier, were there any other barriers or snags that people were running into? Yeah, there's also some requirements around highways. So several of these projects are on Highway 191, which requires a highway access permit. And that requires a traffic impact study, which can also be costly, and a drainage plan. Um, And in some cases, these projects even need to construct a turning lane for cars to turn into the development from the highway. Wow. Okay. That's pretty wild. Yeah. And it slows down the timeline a lot um, because you're also dealing with, you know, the bureaucracy of working with UDOT um, on top of all these other Mm -hmm. things that you need to accomplish to finish the development and the site plan. Yeah. Just so I'm understanding, without this... um this ordinance, this alternative dwelling ordinance, if you were to set up an RV park, for example, would you need to subdivide that property? Um, I know that kind of, maybe not a goal of the program, but a hope was kind of to bring some of these um, illegal camp parks into compliance Mm. by creating a pathway for them to do so. And just to create, yeah, like a legal avenue for folks to create like legal regulated RV parks and campsites um, within the county. Okay. And I think the county has been more lenient with um, unsanctioned RV parks as they're kind of bringing this program online. But the hope is, you know, to have more regulated housing mm-hmm. in general in order to like keep people safe and make sure that they have clean drinking water and um, safe housing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else did you want to talk about that you reported this week? Yeah. One last story. Um, Local residents are reporting concerns about the new Manti LaSalle National Forest Plan and its impact on winter motorized recreation in particular. You know, there's so many aspects of this plan and people have um, concerns about a lot of different aspects of them. But this is just one particular issue that people have voiced concerns about, particularly locals who are the biggest user group for winter motorized rack in the LaSalle's. Yeah, so it's my understanding that this new plan, it's still in, it's still being fleshed out. It hasn't been approved yet or anything, but um, three of the four alternatives now restrict motorized recreation, winter recreation in the LaSalle's, and some people are really upset about that. Um, did you talk to any motorized rec enthusiasts? Yeah, I did. I spoke to one woman named Brittany Ellis. She and her family have had land in the in the mountains for five generations and snowmobiling into the, her cabin is a big part of her family's way of connecting, um, especially in the wintertime. And she's, you know, concerned about being able to continue that tradition yeah. um, if this plan was passed. So the alternatives say just like an outright ban on motorized rec, winter rec in the LaSalle's or what are, what do they say? Yeah, it's not an outright ban. There's, so there's three alternative plans and they each have varying levels of restriction on winter motorized recreation. Um, but they do restrict a lot of high elevations in the Manti LaSalle's, all three of them do. And motorized recreationists have told me that um, elevations over 9,000 feet are really important to be able to snowmobile. There's fewer trees, there's more snow, it's easier to get around. And restricting these elevations could, you know, really curb their access to that land. Why would it be restricted above a certain elevation? Yeah, I wasn't able to speak to the authors of the plan in particular, but I did speak to um, an attorney from SUA, Southern Wilderness Alliance, yeah. Utah Wilderness Alliance. Uh-huh. And um, she kind of just said that um, those those areas of the mountain are the most wild 
um, and they're also most heavily impacted by climate change, and that's why they need to be restricted. Mm-hmm. Did you get a sense of how many people this would impact in terms of winter wreck in the LaSalle's? Like, how many people are we talking are going to be upset about this, would you say? Yeah, I don't know how many people snowmobile in the LaSalle's in the winter, but there were many people at county commission last week um, who really wanted to voice their concerns. So it does seem like there are, there's a, a high number of people in Moab who, mm-hmm. you know, care deeply about this issue. Okay. And did the Forest Service present their plan at the County Commission last week? They didn't. Um, the county is a cooperating agency of the yeah. forest, and they're kind of submitting a letter um, detailing their recommendations for the plan. Okay. So that's why folks were um, kind of voicing their concerns at that meeting. Got it. Is Grand County writing an alternative for the plan? They're not writing an alternative. They're just writing a letter kind of detailing their recommendations based on the alternatives that have been presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were just kind of advocating for the county commission to, you know, endorse winter motorized recreation mm-hmm. as something that the Forest Service could look a little bit more closely at as okay. they develop a final plan. Do you know when the Forest Service will um, choose a new plan? I don't know when the new plan is going to come. Gwen Dilworth, reporter with the Times Independent. Find more stories at moabtimes.com. Back of Beyond Books in Moab is hosting its annual book drive to benefit schools in the area. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News explains the program to Emily Arnson. So 12 institutions in Moab, and these are all schools, so like the elementary school and Grand Preschool, Canyonlands Field Institute and MVMC, um, like all these institutions that work with kids a lot, can go to the bookstore and pick out 30 books um, that they would want to like round out their libraries. And then Back of Beyond will mark them and say like, if you buy this book, we'll donate it back to MVMC. So they have a ton of books in there right now that people can buy, and those books will be directly donated back to the schools that pick them. Oh, cute. Okay. That's a nice program. So this runs through the 31st, you said? Yeah. Okay. Have all of the schools already gone and picked out the books that they want? Yeah. So every school has picked out the books that they want. I talked to Sherry Zollinger, who works at the bookstore, and she said they've been running this fundraiser for um, a couple years now, and they always are able to give all of the schools all the books they picked out. So people really love this fundraiser. Um, And if you go and you really want to donate to a school, but they maybe already have all their books bought for them, you can always donate uh, cash. And then the bookstore will either pick out some books to donate back to the school, or they'll just turn it into a gift card that the school can then use. Did Sherry say how it's going so far? Yeah, it's going great so far. She said something fun this year that she noticed is that a lot of the schools that cater to like middle school and high school students are picking out um, graphic novels. That's like really big this year. And then also the high school librarian picked out a number of adult science books, um, like books by Neil deGrasse Tyson and Walter Isaacson. And so she said it's always just really fun seeing like where schools are trying to round out their collections and their libraries. So there are a lot of really cool books this year. Nice. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to say? Any other like logistics? The There are two new institutions participating this year, and that's the Heron School and the Student Career and Success Center. Nice. What else is coming up in Moab? 
Yeah, so another beloved winter event is Science on Tap, which is run by Science Moab. Um, And so there will be three Science on Tap events, one each in December, January, and February. And these are events where people um, can go to Woody's Tavern and grab a beer and then listen to a local scientist discuss their research in this like very casual setting. Yeah, nice. Do they have the dates already for those talks? Yeah, so the first one is going to be on Wednesday, December 13th, and that features Tara Bishop, who is an ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey um, and is now an assistant professor at Utah Valley University. Did you talk to Tara about what her um, talk is specifically? No, so I didn't get the chance to talk to Tara, but I did talk to um, Carrie Schwartz, who is the executive director at Science Moab. Um, and Tara's talk is titled, Dear Rats, Thank You for Our Drinking Water. So she'll be discussing um, water in the valley and in the desert. And um, Carrie Schwartz said that her educational background makes her a really excellent speaker. So everyone who was picked for these events um, was picked because of their ability to deliver their research in like a really fun and engaging way. Um, so these aren't going to be dry events at all. They're going to be really fun. Yeah, cool. D- um, did she say what the rat element is? No, I actually don't know oh, what the rat okay. element is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's another one on January 17th with Scott Gibson, who is a wildlife conservation biologist with the Utah Division of Wildlife. Do you know what Scott's going to be talking about? Yeah, uh, Scott Gibson is going to be talking about his research concerning snakes. Um, and he was picked because Carrie said he spoke at the Festival of Science and he had everyone laughing really hard talking about rattlesnake genitalia. There's always some fun innuendos at the science on <laughs> yeah. top. Yeah. And the last person, did you get a sense of what they were going to talk about? The last one is on Wednesday, February 7th with Evie Genoa Dalton. She's an assistant professor of geology at Utah State University. So the last person is going to discuss um, geology and sedimentology in the Paradox Basin. So there's really something for everyone in these events. Um, and also everyone will have the chance to learn something new. Yeah nerdy but really fun yeah definitely and so do the proceeds go to science moab yeah so um all all of the events are free cool um yeah so they're really just to kind of like enhance science moab's mission of spreading this knowledge about local science to our community allison harford reporter with the moab sun news find more stories at moabsunnews.com that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.